0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Well, I can't think a better way to start off the first show in 2019, and Happy New Year to everyone, than with Frank Sinatra. A hell of a performer, and, and frankly, one hell of a good tune. And I must confess, we're recording this program before... We've gotten from NASA those images from the Kuiper Belt. We've been building this up for some weeks, this, this flyby of a small object, the likes of which we've never seen beyond Pluto. But uh, <laughs> due to the um, scheduling difficulties of putting this show together, well, we're just going to have to talk on the microphone before those images are released by the good people at NASA. We're sure that Alan Stern and his New Horizons team will uh, have those sparkling images for us very shortly. In fact, you're probably looking at them now, dear listener, as you're listening to this. I, on the other hand, will be somewhere down the central California coast at airtime. I do want to note that on the last day of 2018, I was down in the Bay Area and discovered a spectacular viewing spot of the entire South Bay, San Francisco Bay, um, it was windy as all get-out, as you no, no, no doubt recall on Monday. And uh, when it gets that kind of north wind, it tends to blow every bit of smog down toward southern California, where, frankly, it belongs. And then the process gives you some clear blue skies that are, I mean, I, I could see at one point, I, I think, I could see somewhere between Morgan Hill to the south of, of San Jose and as far north as, I'm sure, the Petaluma area. That's a lot of Bay Area to take in, you know, the extended Bay Area. And while I'm tempted to tell you where that fantastic viewing spot is, I fear if I do so, dear listener, that it will become overcrowded with people, much like Mission Peak has become. But I hate to do this to our listeners, so I'll tell you what. If you really like to know where that really cool spot was, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com and I will put you in the know. We should note that uh this time of year third or fourth of January, I think I think it's one year one or the other year to year uh, marks the earth's perihelion, in other words, the point at which we are closest to the sun. Now, the sun exerts a tide on planet Earth, something people don't really realize, but it does a pretty strong one too it's about i think I think it's about half the strength of the lunar tides, which we're more familiar with. And so it is that as the moon goes around the earth and aligns with or gets at 90 degrees with the sun, you get the difference between spring tides and neap tides. And this year, well, in every year's case, when you either have the new moon or the full moon, where the three bodies are lined up, that's when you get your maximum tide. I mean, you really get your maximum tide because we're closest to the sun. Thus, every year we have what are called king tides, Not so good for parking lots built in low-lying areas near the ocean. Not so good for people walking along the beach or walking along piers near the ocean when nasty sneaker waves may come take you away. This is no joke. You need to be careful, uh, especially this time of year. It has more to do, of course, with nasty weather and big waves, but, you know, add a king tide to to nasty weather, and you're just, you're stacking the deck against yourself. So, if you go to the beach, for gosh sakes, be careful. One method I've always liked to use, which my dad before me liked to use, was to get a hold of a tide log. There are many sources for this, some better than others. I'm fond of the one that is put out by Pacific Publishers, LLC. They have a various editions of it for northern california the bay area the monterey barrier southern california they have them from all over the nation actually and if you want to be in the know when the tides are high when the tides are low and i and, and some of you do want to keep on top of that well that's that's a good way to do it i mention this because at the end of every year it's you know it's time to get a new edition something else i'm a big fan of as you well know dear listener is uh the almanac various forms of almanacs we do want to warn you that if you purchase the Old Farmer's Almanac, which, which, you know, by and large is an excellent product, be careful of which edition you get. A lot of the ones they sell in Costco and other locations are the ones that will suit you best if you live in Boston. It gives you the tides in Boston Harbor. If you want to know what the tides are on the West Coast, by all means, make sure you get the Western Edition. Seriously, look on, look on the cover page very carefully. Make sure it's the Western Edition. All right, It's the end of the year, so we're going to look back. We're going to look forward. We're going to just, I don't know, we're going to do our usual eclectic program. We think that, you know, not being able to know exactly what you're in for when you tune in uh, is something that our listeners enjoy. We think so, anyway. We sort of imagine that once in a while, someone contemplating listening to the show will ask his or herself, I wonder what the hell they're going to talk about today. Well, it, it actually it may come as no surprise that sometimes 10 minutes before airtime we ourselves don't know so even even veteran listeners will probably be surprised by the fact that the first item i'm going to cite in today's program was an excerpt in the week magazine from argentina from perfil is the name of the publication about why argentinian soccer fans are so violent The authors authors of the piece said Argentine leaders profess to be shocked by soccer violence, but they're complicit in it. Two Buenos Aires clubs reached this year's finals of the Latin America Copo Libertadores Championship, but after the second of two games, River Platte fans, armed with rocks and bottles, attacked a bus carrying Boca Juniors players, injuring several. Soccer officials suspended the game, which was eventually held in Madrid. River Platte won, by the way. The authors note that Argentine sports commissioners are trying to blame a few misfits throwing stones for this national embarrassment, but the truth is that Argentine team boards are packed with bigwigs who have strong political, judicial, union, and business ties, and they have allowed the growth of criminal bands disguised as fans. They say it goes all the way to the top, Argentine president Mauricio Macri himself was chairman of Boca from 1995 to 2008 and all that time he had close relationships with the leaders of La 12, the main hooligan group associated with Boca. Soccer management uses these violent gangs to act as informal security or even silence dissent within the clubs. It's like a mafia, one member said. In Argentina, clubs are no longer just soccer teams, but a place to do politics and business. To eliminate the violence, we would have to change the entire system. Now, my personal theory on this is that part of what truly must be to blame in soccer hooliganism is the fact that there's so little action out on the playing field. I mean, I know they kick the ball left, they kick the ball right, they kick the ball left, they kick the ball right. Every once in a great while, someone takes a shot at the goal and usually, almost always, fails. And thus we have, as was so well honored in that great episode of The Simpsons, a situation where frustrated fans break out into soccer riots. Now, Radio Parallax does fault them for this, but I suppose what this all really leads up to is the fact that I have to secretly confess to the fact that I do somewhat like American football, in spite of its Plethora of violence, which they are making some making some belated steps to rein in. If you've been watching NFL games this year, and perhaps you have been, you you note that the kind of vicious hits that used to be commonplace in the league are now severely curtailed and frowned upon. To that we say, well, it's about time. I don't want to belabor this too much, but I do have to say that after watching that game a few weeks back, where the Los Angeles Rams and the Kansas City Chiefs won at it and score like 105 points. That was fun stuff. Something we would contrast with your basic soccer game, which sees a player flopping on the field like a gaffed tuna after his elbow has been brushed by an opponent. And uh, Paul Dorn, if you're listening, sorry buddy, I, I just couldn't help myself. I'm referring this case to a, uh, a faithful fan and sometime contributor who has scolded me in the past for my bad attitude about soccer. Which unfortunately continues well into twenty nineteen. Anyway, final statement I guess is, you know, watch some someone like this kid, Patrick Mahomes, throwing the football, and try watching a soccer match. I think you gain at least some insight as to why they might beat on team buses with clubs. Yeah, and, and again, we, we don't we don't condone this sort of activity. We just sort of Maybe understand it a little. And because we're planning to make this end of year show, I guess this is actually not an end of year, this is a beginning of year show. Although it gets a little bit of both. Especially eclectic, let's go with this item. Article from New Scientists, last issue of 2018. The title was Rogue Traders. The subheadline of the piece by Daniel Kosins was We Thought Economics Was a Uniquely Human Pursuit. But Even Simple Organisms Are At It. The article starts off. The propensity to truck, barter, and exchange one thing for another is common to all men and to be found in no other race of animals, so wrote Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations. That was in 1776. But the idea that humans are the only species capable of economic behavior persisted for a long time, and intuitively it makes sense. Responding to shifts in supply and demand, for instance, must be the preserve of species with brains hefty enough to think through decisions rationally or so we thought as we get to know earth's myriad other species better it becomes apparent that many animals and organisms make trades and that some are surprisingly savvy wheeler dealers capable of manipulating the market in their own selfish interests from frisky baboons to fish offering spa treatments on the reef Pretty much everywhere we look in nature, we find evidence of surprisingly sophisticated economic decision-making, even fungi are at it. And according to some studies, these brainless soil dwellers give the impression of being more rational than us. I must add at this point, this is not does not come as a complete surprise to Radio Parallax. But, said Daniel Cosens, such revelations are handing us a fresh understanding of the origins of cooperation. They also chip away at the idea that sophisticated behavior requires a big brain. All right, fast forward here. The article refers to a Ronald Noah. He began watching baboons in Kenya in the early 1980s. And uh, a couple questions came up of how it was that these animals were cooperating. We all know that monkeys do groom one another. So people asked from a Darwinian standpoint, where's the payoff to this? And the first suggestion was that kin selection was at play. The idea that an animal sometimes stands a better chance of passing on its DNA not by finding a mate itself, but by helping a close relative to reproduce. But they note that kin selection can't easily account for cases in which unrelated species help each other. The other argument was reciprocal altruism, which said that animals that help others do so because they know they will get something in return. Game theory was invoked to explain how an altruistic animal could guarantee reciprocity with Evolutionary theorists using a two player game called The Prisoner's Dilemma to figure out how it worked in nature. But there was a problem. Noah said they were building card houses of one model on top of another and never bothering about empirical evidence. Empirical evidence, that's going out and checking and seeing if it conforms to reality. This is something we think most economists should pay better attention to. At any rate, out in the field, Noah quickly noticed the error of both these ideas. And here's a telling example. When two low-ranking baboons teamed up to challenge the dominant male so that one of them could mate with a female, they didn't always stick with the same collaborator after the dethroning, as the theorist had assumed. Quite the opposite. These males switched partners and played their friends off against each other to make sure they got more mating time than their collaborators. I don't know, this strikes me as something more like fraternity life. But in the baboon world, in a nutshell, that showed that the essence of cooperative relationships was partner choice. When the baboons could shop around for the best deal among prospective collaborators, well, that made all the difference. So back in 1994, Noah with Peter Hammerstein, now at Humboldt University in Berlin, set out this theory of biological markets. They tried applying it to all manner of other species to see if it would explain their cooperative behavior, and they found that it worked. Has captured the imagination of several young biologists, including Redouan Bashare, one of Noah's PhD students. Bashare studied the reef fish called the cleaner wrasse. You've seen these on various nature specials. The fish, fish will come in, park itself, and get serviced like a gas station from the cleaner wrasse, which will pick parasites off of its gills, etc. In this case, it's a good deal for both parties. The cleaner rasses get a meal, and the clients get cleaned. But they note, however, there's a conflict of interest in this. The cleaners like to take nips off their clients' protective mucus layers much more than they do the parasites, so they are liable to cheat. This means to get good service, clients have to get cleaners to go against their preference, and cleaners have to choose when to cheat. Having learned to scuba dive, Bashari spent many hours observing the cleaner wrasse in the Red Sea. He observed that there were two types of clients. There were visitors, such as parrotfish, which could travel easily between several cleaning stations, and then there were residents, like the smaller melanurus wrasse, which tends to stick to one location. Bahari figured that visitors had a strategic advantage because they could shop around. Sure enough, in 2002, he showed that visitors almost always get better service. They were seen more quickly and treated more gently, with the cleaners less likely to sneak a bite of them than residents. But, noted Bishari, the coral reef free market doesn't end there. He found that cleaner wrasses were less likely to cheat when another fish is watching, and that they never do so when the client is a predator. Well, that's no surprise. I think Machiavelli would understand that one. You know, It's better to be feared than loved. And I also have to to add the aside of the Gary Larson cartoon, where a rather larger fish is sheepishly remarking to another one that, hey, you know those cleaner wrasses? I haven't eaten those things like popcorn, Or, or something to that effect. I'm not sure I got it right exactly. This story gets even stranger. Down in Australia, Bashari and colleagues noticed that the cleaner wrasses there had stopped giving visitors priority access. The reason, he surmised, was that several cyclones and an El Nino climate oscillation had killed off 80% of the cleaner races. It had suddenly become a restricted market, and the cleaners know it. There's nothing to stop them from making the visitors wait, said Bishari. I was optimistic that the market paradigm would work in this system, but the sophistication continues to surprise me. These fish are constantly adjusting to market conditions and updating their strategies accordingly. So the thrust of this article is that the fact that, well, if fish can do this with tiny brains, it challenges the idea that only creatures with weighty lumps of gray matter are capable of complex behaviors, such as responding to shifts in supply and demand. The article closes with an even more remarkable example of how mycorrhizal fungi will trade phosphorus for carbon with the roots of plants. And they will do so in a way that is most advantageous to them. If a plant's in the shade doesn't have as much as carbon, it doesn't give it as much phosphorus. In monitoring these changes that were taking place, they said all kinds of economic shenanigans were found. Anyway, interesting piece. For more information, we suggest you check it out in the magazine. All right, sometimes I'd like to pause and figure out where we're going to go next with with this wide-ranging discussion. Mr. Merlin just pointed out a a little piece I cut out of the Sacramento Bee from last October. The headline was, No More Extremism, Saudi Prince Says. I believe we talked about this on the program last October, but it's worth an ironic look back. To quote from the piece, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman said Tuesday Saudi Arabia was returning to moderate Islam and intended to eradicate extremism. He said, We are returning to what used to be, to moderate Islam, open to the world, all religions. Right. Unless you make me mad. In that case, I'll have you cut into pieces in the Turkish embassy. Anyway, MBS, but we know that you, you know, decide to allow women to drive now in the country, but really, we, we would ask you not to cut up, you know, your critics into pieces. Just a suggestion on our part. Now Here's a story we generally do need your help on, dear listener. We're hearing a lot of different things from all different sides, and we need someone who's knowledgeable to contact us at info at com. The question is, is recycling doing any good? I'm holding another article in my hand uh, advising us on how it is we should recycle. There's some tips from pro-recyclers, supposedly, about what to do with our holiday stuff. And I guess my question is, in the wake of China saying, we don't want your garbage anymore, you can keep all your recycling stuff, um, if you take the time to sort things out and put it in one bin, put recycle bin, put your garbage in the bin, does it make a difference, or is it all winding up in the same landfill? We have heard rumors that it is. Please help us sort that one out. Will you? We can't tell if what reading is a bunch of garbage in this case, we hope so. And here's something we have to address for twenty nineteen some variation of the law and unintended consequences uh, as as America goes ahead with more fracking, which is driving down the price of fossil fuels, particularly gas. Uh, We're seeing nuclear power at a competitive disadvantage. And, according to Axios.com, a third of America's nuclear power plants could be taken offline in the next several years. And, of course, this is partly from the competition from natural gas. Nuclear power currently generates 20% of our country's electricity... Replacing that electricity produced by a single nuclear reactor requires building more than 800 average-sized wind turbines or 15.8 million solar panels. Now, we should have more solar panels and wind turbines, but until we get them up and running, we need nuclear power. And in fact, we, I think, need to expand nuclear power in the future. We've done many programs on this topic in the past, and we've decided we are decidedly not anti-nuke. We're not alone in this. New Scientist Magazine cites the Union of Concerned Scientists, noting that they too have warmed to nuclear power. Commentary piece by Mark Linus says, environmentalists should too. It's worth quoting from this editorial. Changing your mind on a controversial topic isn't easy, especially when you spent decades campaigning against your new position, which is why the decision by the Union of Concerned Scientists to drop its long-standing opposition to nuclear power is so important and why the organization deserves great credit for having the courage to take this step. The U.S. Advocacy Group isn't campaigning for new nuclear plants to be built, however. Its president has called for funding to preserve nuclear power from existing plants that are operating safely. The rationale laid out in the UCS's latest report is that shuttering nuclear plants are often replaced with one's burning fossil fuels. Hello. They note that the shift from nuclear to coal and gas has happened most clearly in Germany, where Angela Merkel's decision to phase out all nuclear power generation has led to an increased reliance on fossil fuels. You know, the stuff that's putting CO2 in the atmosphere. The site of a nation that once led the fight against climate change, bulldozing forests to expand open-cast coal mining, serves as a warning to where anti-nuclear ideology can lead. You know, nuclear power has problems. We all know that. But the piece closes by noting that nuclear's problems of waste, cost, and safety are trivial compared to the threat posed by unmitigated global warming. Enough said. All right, we got about five minutes left in the segment. Let's take a look back at 2018. And by the way, as the year closes, Donald Trump at one point declared that, you know, ISIS is finished. Let's pull the heck out of Syria. We suspect that ISIS is not finished, but you do wonder sometimes in these long, protracted wars, which go on and on and on, like Afghanistan, whether at some point it doesn't make more sense to declare victory, pull your troops out, go home. I'm not sure that that is the correct thing to do in Syria, but it may be the correct thing to do in Afghanistan. What are we fighting over there for? Do you know? I don't. I don't think Trump does. I don't think anybody does. Well, actually, a lot of people do know why we're fighting protracted wars all over the world. There's a lot of money in it. On this, we would refer you to our archives for an interview conducted many years ago with Joel Andreas, about his book, Addicted to War, Why the U.S. Can't Kick Militarism. We think it tragically explains how the world really operates, what's really going on, and it's pretty grim reading, but I think unless you really have the picture of what is actually happening, it's hard to combat it. It's going to be hard to combat it under any circumstances, but it's good to have a clear picture of reality, we think. Anyway, looking back at polling data, 64% of Americans last year thought the nation is headed in the wrong direction. 77% of Americans are dissatisfied with the state of American politics. 75% have little or no confidence in our elected officials. 56% aren't confident in the political wisdom of the American people. People aren't too happy with Donald Trump. 69% say he's damaged the dignity of the presidency. 56% say that he's done more to divide than unite America. And the 36% feel that his words and actions have helped fuel political violence. And all these poll data I'm citing are from various sources, but our guesses are probably accurate. We have become more tolerant. 61% of Americans think immigration helps more than it hurts, to which we add, duh. A record, 67% of Americans now support same-sex marriage, which I suppose is good now that it's the law of the land. What are Americans scared of? I found this collection to be eye-opening. 42% of Americans are afraid they'll become a victim of a random mass shooting. That's up from 16% just three years ago in 2015. I think the one that shocks me the most, according to The Economist, 30% of Americans worry that Donald Trump is being framed for crimes by the FBI and Justice Department. Our guess is that's the 30% of the nation that watches Fox News. Here's one I really like. Americans do have a hard time deciding which is worse. In this case, the decision comes down to which is scarier, Donald Trump or sharks? It turns out, while 43% say sharks, 42% say Donald Trump. All right, I think we do need a little comedy relief as we, as we wrap up here. Here's a couple of items that may provide some. And by the way, we have the week to thank for both of these as we did that summary of statistical information. Item number one, a California woman has sued the state after it told her that the hairy, scary creature she saw in the woods was not Bigfoot, but in fact, a bear. Evidently, Claudia Akeley, age 46, was hiking with her two daughters when she says they spotted a Sasquatch staring menacingly at them through a split tree. So she called California's Department of Fish and Wildlife. Oh, well, that'll get results. We have chronicled many of their antics on this show in the past. You know, like when jackasses that work for the department go to other states or other countries and shoot big game just for the hell of it. Remember the one when they took away a pet deer because you can't own a wild animal? This is California. Anyway, the bright sparks at the California Department of Fish and Wildlife told her she'd probably seen a bear... And this made her mad. So she filed a lawsuit demanding the state recognize Sasquatch as a distinct species. An essential first step, she said, to protect the public from potentially dangerous big feet or bigfoots. Not sure which it is. Said Ackley, if I can save one life, it will be worth it. And finally, we have this six armed men in Belgium agreed to postpone a robbery on the advice of the shopkeeper they were trying to rob. When the robbers first set out to hold up the store, the merchant, identified only as Didier, told them to come back at closing time when he'd have more money. (laughs) The robbers apparently agreed, but came back a bit early, at which point Didier berated them, saying, you have to buy a watch. It's 5.30, not 6.30. So when they arrived the third time, The police were waiting for them. Let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We've got lots more.